This week's episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the website that helps you make websites. Andrew, what's a website? It's a collection of bits and bytes on somebody else's computer that everybody can look at. And if you, the listener, want to turn your cool idea into one of those, you should head to Squarespace. They can help you showcase your work, blog or publish content, or sell products and services of all kinds. They've got beautiful templates created by world-class designers to help you do it. And they've got 24-7 award-winning customer support in case you have any problems. We've been using Squarespace for a good long time, and we can highly recommend them. Uh, One thing I really like about them is they're optimized for mobile right out of the box. So mm. no matter what your screen's New Year's resolution is, <laughs> it's going to look great. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, if you aren't turned off by that wonderful joke, you can head to squarespace.com slash overdue for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code overdue to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That is squarespace.com slash overdue. Make it in 2020. This is a HeadGum Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. Uh, My name is Andrew. We are here in a new decade. A new decade. Welcome. If you are keeping track of Andrew's winter illnesses. (laughs) Which we know you are. Put another one on the big board because (laughs) your boy got strep throat. (laughs) So, so far since we sent Henry to daycare... I've gotten norovirus and a strep throat. Mm-hmm. And at this point, like I was expecting to be sick for a lot of the winter, but I would kill someone to just catch a cold. You know, <laughs> can I just catch a cold? I could deal with the cold. Well, this podcast will now be submitted as evidence as Andrew, the cold killer of winter 2020. <laughs> it's locked up. Um, he's a prince among men, which is relevant because this week I read The Prince. By Niccolo Machiavelli. Andrew, I'm nice. So, a I, cool biography of Prince. That's right. Definitely what it is. Rain. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um I have not been as sick as you. Sorry. I I stump I did not mean to just kind of eject or see out of the sick. No, no, it's fine. It's you can't access this feeling that I'm feeling, which is that daycares are also germ warfare labs. <laughs> It's not just that kids bring all the germs that they encounter in there, but it's where new germs and new diseases are synthesized. It's and true. Just, I feel like this is unfair because his stupid baby immune system is the bad one. Why does my why doesn't my mature adult immune system protect me from any? Well, because they're cultivating new diseases in him yeah, for him to right. bring home. That's hmm. the germ war- warfare aspect. And of you're it, paying so them, which is the racket. It's really it is a racket. <laughs> So much been so much lost productivity for you're me. You're paying them to be their R and D, which is really unfortunate. Ugh. Um. So every week on the show, one of us reads a book or something like a book, and we talk about it to each other and you, the listener. Uh, this week, I have read The Prince by Niccolo Machiavelli, as I said, which was recommended to us by one of our Patreon supporters, Garrett. Thank you, Garrett. 
Uh, he says of the work, I feel like this is a pretty good pick for the current moment. The original manual <laughs> the original manual for absolute monarchs and tyrants at a time when tyranny seems like it's on the rise again. Additionally, there's an interesting theory I've seen a few times lately that Machiavelli wrote the book and had it distributed in order to show people the ways that tyrants might try and manipulate or exploit them. Feels pretty timely. I don't know that I've seen that one in particular, but we I think we'll get into at least one of the primary, like non-conventional theories of the prince uh, mm. a little bit later in the episode. Andrew, have you read this thing before? I've not read it before. I only know going into it that this is one of the episodes where we talk about a thing that has an adjective now that's used as shorthand to refer oh, that's to the a, ideas. Yes, that's that a good way to think about it. So you got what? You got Kafkaesque, you got Orwellian, now you've got Machiavellian. I'm not sure what others we've hit. But those yeah. are definitely the big ones, right? <laughs> those are the big ones. And it's like usually bad. I think of those three, Kafkaesque <laughs> is the least bad, and then Orwellian, and then Machiavellian. Yeah, but... Kafkaesque seems to describe the experience of the victim of whatever the malevolence is, whereas Orwellian and Machiavellian seem to describe like the the malevolence themselves whatever that might be and and kafkaesque i feel like isn't even always malevolence so much as it is just like complication and bureaucracy for sure. complication and bureaucracy's sake that's very true that's very true uh, but anyway i think i read let's this get out of this kafkaesque cul-de-sac that oh, i've man. gotten us into what if kafka lived on your cul-de-sac with you um i Big think bug. I read part of this book in high school, like I, in like a great books series where it was like, read the part that you need to read for an essay. But I certainly, I read um, for this episode of our show, I read the Penguin Classics imprint that was translated by a guy named Tim Parks in 2009, I want to say. I saw a bunch of articles by him around 2009. So if that's okay. not the exact date, that's close. And some of what he he is aware of, like the mo the post nine eleven U.S. interventions in the Middle East, which lo and behold are very relevant again in twenty nineteen. Well, 2020. given two thousand nine, oh, like how how sure are we that he's not some Tea Party guy who's just really trying to stick it to Obama okay. by <laughs> translating the Prince again? I don't think that's the case, but I could okay. be wrong. I'm just throwing out theories. No, that's fair. Um, so what do you know about Mr. Machiavelli, Andrew, other than that uh, he inspired a word? I know that he's an Italian, Mamma Mia. That's a one spicy author. Yep. Um, he was born in, sorry, he was born in 1469 <laughs> nice. and died in 1527. And this is a, um, it's a, it's an uncommonly stable period in Italian politics and like daily life segueing into an, un, into an unstable oh, yeah. period in Italian politics and daily life. So I was, do, I did some research, like you asked into like the background of Italy during this time. So it's going to be like a high level sort of summary but i think it's basically right um so this is one of the i wrote uh, he was born in florence during one of those historical periods where the maps have all his little arrows on them <laughs> um italy hadn't been so we're talking like the 13 1400s italy hadn't been a unified political entity in hundreds of years like we are many many hundreds of years past the the collapse of the western roman empire yeah 
and nothing monolithic really rose up and, and took its place after that. Like the Byzantine Empire was briefly there, but not for long. Um, and so we're talking about a peninsula that's covered with these little city states, um, you know, like a Venice, Florence, like the big, the big ones. Milan, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and they, uh, there, there was this specific period uh, called the Peace of Lodi, which is a reference to the Treaty of Lodi um, that lasted from 1454 to 1494, where all of these um, city states had, you know, agreed to stop fighting each other, and this created a uh, created stability in which these city states were able to like capitalize on um advances they had made in like trade and finance and and arts and all kinds of other things to uh do the renaissance basically <laughs> hey everybody let's stop fighting and do a renaissance and do a renaissance <laughs> um but yeah italy was it was for a long time able to i don't know if it's really like playing different european powers off of each other but it's able to sort of be on the outside of things like the crusades and oh sure like profit off of them which yeah. is super cool and fun neat um so yeah following a lot of centuries of of crusades and, and plague like there is this 40-ish year period of stability in italy where the renaissance kind of springs up and happens and then is exported to the rest of europe just as italy falls back into uh, turmoil because in uh, 1494 under King Charles VIII of France, um, France, France invaded uh, Naples, which prompted Venice to ally with Austria and Spain, which set off a whole thing, as I write in my notes. <laughs> um, these Italian wars, um, like any, pretty much anybody who was anybody in Europe at the time got their hands on this ball, France, Spain, Austria, England. <laughs> The Holy Roman Empire, the Papacy, the Ottoman Empire, like everybody was in there sure. mixing it up. So it was just this big like proxy battle basically yes, that took yes. place in Italy. And this is where, you know, Machiavelli was a, a government official in the like very late 1400s and early 1500s in what was then the newly restored Florentine Republic. Correct. And uh, the prince was inspired largely by watching figures like Pope Alexander VI and Cesare Borgia, who was his son. Love uh, to be a pope's to, son. Love to, be, love a to be a pope's son. illegitimate son. <laughs> uh, try, they were trying to claim Italy for themselves yeah, through, yeah. through not always super scrupulous methods. No. <laughs> um, Later on, he was responsible for Florence's militia. This is getting past the the subject matter of the prince a little bit, but just kind of getting us through more Machiavelli background. Um, He, while he was the leader of this militia, he found some early success in deciding to rely mostly on Florence's citizens as soldiers rather than mercenaries under the theory that uh, mercenaries were not always loyal and they were especially likely to turn tail when you needed them the most and that you know citizens would have more skin in the game because they're fighting for like literally the place where they live um but uh in 1512 i believe yeah medici's backed by pope julius ii and the spanish army uh, defeated Florence, uh, dissolved its government, both the you know republic and the city state itself, and removed Machiavelli from office. Uh, briefly, they tortured him for conspiracy in 1513, 
Uh, but he was kind of persona non grata in politics for the rest of his life after that. And so those who can't do, they write. Yep. <laughs> Apparently, because that's what Machiavelli sort of devoted the rest of his life to. Um, the printed version of The Prince that we have now was published posthumously in 1532, but there is a a version with a Latin title that is thought to have been distributed in 1513, which is just after all this stuff happened. Yes, 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 yes. Um, it is dedicated. So that's I got about him. Is yeah. dedicated to Lorenzo de' Medici, Lorenzo the Magnificent, though it was mm-hmm. originally meant for his uncle Giuliano de' Medici, who I think died, who was supposed to take over. <laughs> um, well, I mean, we know he died. Well, but. <laughs> no, I think, yes. Um, and it's. Part of a genre of work that apparently existed called Mirrors for Princes, which yeah, are well, like, it's a, a weird genre. I, I I was hoping it was more than this. Like I was hoping it had more of an element of satire to it because we got those questions about satire. But apparently they're just like cool guidebooks for yep. cool rulers. <laughs> it's like the player's handbook for you, so you're a prince. It's so you're a prince now. So you're expecting. <laughs> it's the pamphlet that you get at the doctor's office. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there's an element, a lot of what we'll end up talking about the rest of the episode, I think, are like, to what extent is this a cover letter for a job he hopes to get later? To what extent is it like vengeful satire? And to what extent is it, oh, I'm banished to the countryside and I need something to do and I spent my life trying to get into politics and all I can think about are the people who kicked me out of politics and I'm just going to sit yeah. down and write about them all evening. Sure. Um, he did write another major work called Discourses on Livy, which was, I think, published in 1531. And it does have a lot about Roman republicanism and some thoughts about like governments of people being better than states led by like individuals and fleshes out some ideas about checks and balances. And so when you see people like even folks like Rousseau or guys in the 50s like Garrett Mattingly writing about this being a satire, that's what they're drawing on. There's like other works by Machiavelli that are like, hey, republics are pretty good. And instead of like how to be an evil dude and, yeah, and um, influence people. <laughs> yeah. So so there that's where that's coming from. There's another like this is sort of a birth of just raw political science of just like observing power and the way that power works, which we'll talk a lot about. Um, And that I think is like the other element of it. It's like Machiavelli was just a keen observer of like the way things worked and the way things had worked and the way things could work. And it's not necessarily like do this and you'll fail or do this and you'll win. It's just, if you want to be in power, do this, I guess, because other people did it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the there's a, I don't know, Andrew, the Latin name that you found. It was originally called like Of Principalities mm-hmm. um, or has also been called Il Princip. And the yeah, De Principatibus uh, was the Latin title. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, and the translator Tim Parks writes in his introduction he talks a lot about like the fact that calling it the prince is like really unhelpful to a modern english reader in particular because of like connotations of prince charming or prince the musician or whatever you whatever you might be thinking about um whereas machiavelli mostly just means like people who are in charge the dude in charge of the state and that was something that 
Italian people who were in charge of their city states were called at the yes. time. Yes, 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 yeah. Um And there's another thing that I want to come back to later where just like the nature of what is quote unquote good in the language of this book is not necessarily meant morally good, but is meant like effective or not effective. Um, so yeah, we'll end up talking about a little bit of what Machiavelli writes, our responses to it. Uh, and that'll be the rest of the show. Yeah. Anything yeah. else, Andrew? No, I think I'm good. Let's take a quick break and we'll talk about the prints. Okay. Bye. Hey Andrew, what does a prince need? A crown. He yes. What else does he need? A uh, cape, cool cape with fluffy edges. <laughs> Good. Anything else? Uh, uh, cool princess. <laughs> well, and he's gonna get a princess with a sick, beautiful smile. But oh, cool. That's. <laughs> What's a good way to get a beautiful smile? A good way to get a beautiful smile is to brush your teeth really good. And that's why it's great that Quip is sponsoring our show again this week. So all the princes that listen can get a cool, cool toothbrush that has sensitive sonic vibrations with a built-in timer and 30-second pulses to guide a full and even clean. Uh, Quip helps you brush for two minutes twice a day, and they send you some floss, too, so uh, you make sure you floss between those suckers. The Quip floss dispenser even comes with pre-marked string, so you use just enough floss. Uh, Quip delivers the f- a fresh brush head floss and toothpaste refills to your door every three months with free shipping, so your routine is always right. Join over 3 million healthy mouths and get Quip today starting at $25. If you go to getquip.com slash overdue right now, you'll get your first refill pack free. That's your first refill free at getquip.com slash overdue. That's G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash overdue. Quip, the good habits company. So one thing I didn't know about The Prince, Andrew, and its publication history coming into this thing is like we talked a little bit before the break about it being kind of like a cover letter for a bored guy without a job. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't really know like how or why it took off. And one of the things sure. that parks... You could fill a book the size of The Prince with the stuff I didn't know about the book <laughs> The Prince. So. Funny you say about the size because it's like maybe in the edition I have, it's like maybe 130 pages, but it's okay. small enough that it could fit in my pocket. Like if I just wanted a reminder about how to be a ruthless a-hole any, <laughs> every day, <laughs> like I could just keep it in my jeans. Cool. Um, like a little travel Bible. It is. It is like a little travel Bible. Um he mentions in his introduction, Tim Parks does, that in the 1570s, when Catherine de' Medici, the uh, the mom of Charles IX of France, was like controlling the French court, um, a Huguenot uh, named Innocent Jean Thier. You mean a huge knot? Yeah, a huge knot. Um, they had been, you know, a number of them had been killed in the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. Um, he wrote a book like attacking Machiavelli's The Prince, um, which led to like decades of people being like, huh, that book's bad, huh? Interesting. Well, I should go re like he cre- Is this like when you retweet some idiot with a bad opinion and that just leads to more people seeing the bad opinion? Correct. It's like a it's like a Streisand <laughs> effect for evil people. Maybe we should call it the Machiavelli effect. Maybe we should. Um, so then you start. Uh, he already has a thing that's named. That's <laughs> true. We don't need to give him any more. Um, and so you start to see characters in like 
English Renaissance plays that are effectively like, you know, Iago's and things like that who are evil courtiers who will do anything to get ahead and they don't have morals, but they do have cunning. Um, well, and it probably helps that the rest of Europe is sort of looking to Italy culturally at this, at that's this a good point. point. Yeah. To, to, you know, to segue from the Italian Renaissance into the Northern Renaissance. Sure, so. sure. And then he also like, Parks makes a good point that like there's also just something appealing about a character regardless of their morals who can like control their destiny it's a thing that a lot of us want to do in our own lives so like good or bad we tend to be at least interested in like oh that person is like shaping their life and ha- yeah i guess it's why it's one reason why we are into scoundrels with a code or whatever yeah a, yes 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 fictional archetype i think um i don't know if it's bertrand russell has referred to this book as like a handbook for gangsters essentially because it is about like pure power and and how you control it um mm-hmm. so i wanted to give that backstory just because i think it's interesting that the way that this book has propagated I think it does prevent you from maybe reading it honestly. So I think the, the coming into it with, hey, is it satire was a refreshing take because ultimately I don't think I found that to be the case. Um, okay. But I do, I did find it to be less like, here's a textbook for being a evil jerk. <laughs> um, because I think it's about like, hey, evil jerks have been in power, here's what they did, or just here, people have been in power, here's what they did, is like... Well, here's a, so here, one of the sort of high-level summaries of it that I saw, or like the, you know, the takeaways of it is that um, it's maybe not, the end message isn't necessarily, maybe it's just like, go be, go forth and be evil and be horrible, (laughs) but like, if you achieve your political goals whatever they you know whatever whatever they may be through unscrupulous methods then maybe the ends justify the means is that an element of it at all or yes, is it that is certainly an element of it so there's a sure. there's a big thing that parks talks about in this translator's note where he deals with the italian word or i guess i think it was written in the vernacular italian um virtue where like does that mean good and he's not sure that we should read it that way. And it's a, it's a particular stumbling block uh, for an English reader. So a good example, I think, um, chapter 12, he's talking about having armies. And this is the chapter where he complains the most about how bad mercenaries are, which I think is from <laughs> personal experience. Yeah, no, he, um, he wrote a lot of letters, I think, also during his time as the commander of this of the militia talking about mercenaries being bad. So. And he says, the main foundations of any state, whether it be new or old or a new territory acquired by an old regime, are good laws and good armed forces. And since you can't have good laws if you don't have good armed forces, while if you have good armed forces, good laws inevitably follow i'll leave aside a discussion of the law and go straight to the question of the army so you watch machiavelli go like he that last statement he skips right past like what the heck will we write down in our laws and just goes okay do you have the muscle to back your laws up sure and he also does he also does that rhetorical thing where he like maybe there's a hole in his argument (laughs) where (laughs) 
<laughs> where you go from, well, a good army must mean that you're going to have some sick laws. Yes. <laughs> sure. And he just accepts that as true so he can do the rest of his, his argument. And then what we end up fighting about is the argument and not like the logic that the argument sprang from. Yes. Like that's a fun thing. Yeah. And so the word good, and this is one of the most concentrated, the passages where it's most concentrated it doesn't necessarily mean morally good. It doesn't mean it's going to get you into heaven. It just means, is it, will it accomplish your goals? Like, if you want to control what the laws are, you should have people with swords to enforce what the laws are. Like, sure. that again, so something he's talking about a lot is, can you do the thing you want to do or not? And here are here are the ways in which you can accomplish it, and here are the ways in which you will fail if you don't account for these other things. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the opening is that he is writing to the prince, he's writing to Lorenzo, and he's like, "Hey, I'm not gonna butter you up, I'm not gonna dress this up in fancy phrases or whatever. I just want to talk to you about being a prince and ruling a state and what that's gonna be like for you if you want to do it." Mm-hmm. He he's like this is a gift and usually you give like gifts that people want and I hope this is a thing you want <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it's everybody's aunt on yeah. Christmas <laughs> yeah um, you it's like when you wish someone gives you a gift card but they give you like a journal full of wisdom instead mm-hmm. just give or a me. little like plastic uh, toilet full of brown silly putty just to, to pick a to pick a gift <laughs> a random example or a butt face towel oh yeah <laughs> the butt face towel you use one part of it on your butt and one part of your face <laughs> that's a gift i got once in the mail um so he starts his whole thing here talking about that toilet thing this year oh I'm no 34 years old i have a baby <laughs> give it to your baby son. no he would just put it in his mouth and eat it. Not oh, ready no, for that. I'd okay, save it for your baby. Anywho, turn it into the real thing. Machiavelli is talking about different kinds of states and how to conquer them. And he mostly talks about... Um, this is all in the context of you being a new prince, Andrew. So you are not necessarily a hereditary prince. Sure, let me get into the... Get into the mindset. Okay, I'm there. Okay. So he's asking, like, is this a... Is the place you're conquering like new, totally new, or is it part of like an older state? And he he points out um, that it's been around for a while, but only locals know about it. Okay, it's a cool kingdom. <laughs> it's a hip kingdom. Yeah. <laughs> God. Okay, Christopher Columbus. Um, <laughs> and he he does even say like every time the Romans conquered. Or he asserts, I don't want to just say it's not necessarily a fact, but he's, he asserts that every time the Romans conquered a land, it was on the invitation of the locals. I don't know that that's exactly true, but the implication is that they were able to prop up local leadership, align themselves with local customs um, in such a way that made their conquering perhaps more palatable. Perhaps that is, that is essentially true. Like I'm not. I'm not going to say that everybody greeted the Romans as liberators or whatever. No, that's no, no, just no. straight propaganda. But um, but yeah, there was a lot of, especially. I mean, I think Greece is the is mm. the easiest example to look to yes. because like Greek Romanness and Roman Romanness are are pretty different things. But yeah, there's a lot of assimilation going on 
and a lot of like adapting of local customs to make conquering go down easier i guess yeah and that's probably what he's he, mostly talking he talks about. about like having a different language and whether or not that creates barriers to success um he spends a few pages just railing against uh one of the king louis i'm not which king louis is it i don't remember but he just says like here's all the things that louis did wrong he illuminated the he eliminated the weaker states he enhanced the power of one of italy's stronger states he brought in an extremely powerful foreign king, and he didn't go live in the territory he'd acquired, and he didn't establish colonies. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, in particular, those like two last ones are a thing that he says a lot of, like, if you're going to go conquer people, live there. Don't just sit in your house on the other side of the peninsula and expect them to follow you. They'll get mad. Sure. Um, or set up local governors to rule in your stead and that will be good too that will be helpful for you Um, delegate but do it right yes delegate but doing do it right um and then he talks about if you're going to try and conquer an existing kingdom um there are two types one is it's ruled by a king but the lords are really strong Mm -hmm. um so this is France. It's easy to enter, but hard to hold. Like, you can get into sure. France. Maybe, like, one lord is pissed at the king of France, and he's like, come on in, help me conquer stuff. But you can't, like, conquer all those lords. It's going to be very difficult. And um, I think this is part of why Italy was so precarious, is you had, like, these princes, and you had all these, like, powerful merchant families, and it just created a lot of power centers that were hard to wrap your head all the way around yes and and the king is only the king because all of these noble people have assented to his rule his or her mm-hmm. rule so if you conquer even if you lop off the head of the king you're not necessarily any closer to ruling this territory because yeah. and this is even just mostly talking about secular rulership like it doesn't have anything to do with the 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 church papacy and yes. the church and all the all that stuff so that's fun also the other end of the spectrum are states that are basically just a king who rules over everyone and that is turkey in his example which is it's hard to enter it's hard to get in there but once you do just kill the king and you're in charge like if you could um because there's like a weak noble class everyone is appointed ministers by the king essentially um so it's it's just that is a precursor to a point he makes later in the book, which is where you can find roots of his other arguments about republicanism, where he talks about the differences between having support of the nobles and having support of the people. And it got into like an interesting like class warfare thing that I did not expect to find in Machiavelli. Yeah, talk about that a little bit because that's... If you're thinking about, and I think people, Dante is living proof, right, that everybody in Italy during this general time period was just thinking about antiquity literally all the time, always, because it's like the good old days. Uh But um, like, if you think about Julius and Augustus Caesar, they mostly succeeded by killing all the competing nobles (laughs) and making sure that nobody was strong enough to to uh, compete against them and that was the death of the roman republic which was the world's like a biggest and longest standing republic for a long time yes he says a monarchy can be brought about either by the common people or the nobles when one or the other party finds it convenient he then says like wealthy parties 
will like you know concentrate power around an individual that they think that they can control and the people uh will concentrate prestige on one citizen and then make him an authority to protect them against the nobles um he says the nobles want to oppress the people while the people want to keep want to be free from oppression uh and the biggest the reason that machiavelli comes down on the side of like keep the people loving you or at least on your side love is a different issue is that like all the nobles think that they're your equal (laughs) so they will come Mm. after you and if they're not happy with what you're doing they'll just take you out so you might as well be a champion of the people who have greater numbers um if if the people actually revolt then the the impacts will be far you know harder and wider um yeah well, to talk about our own modern yeah, system yeah. a little bit, I don't, I don't know if Machiavelli got into this at all because, like, so few, uh, so few like political entities had like a whole bunch of positions that were all determined by the people. Mm. But if you get as a as a ruler, you get the people on your side, then you can make some of the other like noble class fall in line because they need the popular support too, and they don't want to cross you. Do, do you know what I mean? Yeah, he doesn't quite. Like, get... I'm talking mostly about how the United States Senate, Senate works works yes. now. Yeah, <laughs> he doesn't quite get into that. He does talk about um, when you're choosing your a later chapter is about um, how good princes work. And like whether or not you surround yourself with good advisors, um, and whether like make sure you don't have flatterers near you, make sure you don't have people who have their own political ambitions too close to you, because they will give you advice that is not necessarily in your best interest; it's in their best interest. Um, and so, what you're saying can kind of resonate with that too. If you keep, if you're always keeping the people in mind then you're not necessarily going to listen to people who like also want to be in charge. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, like all of this is run through a lens of he's, he will make almost Malcolm Gladwell esque asides to like, and here is a, a figure from history that we should talk about for four paragraphs before I get back to the assertion that I made at the top of this chapter. Like, <laughs> let me riff about Moses or let me riff about Caesar Borgia or let me riff about, some other Italian guy who did a bad job. <laughs> and uh, he does say, let us, um, you should imitate great men through history. Then there are only so many and we can't be as good as them. But like any archer trying to hit a target far away, we aim higher than our target in the hopes that we reach where we hope to go. <laughs> so essentially, <laughs> Machiavelli came up with shoot for the moon, even if you miss, you'll land among yep. the stars. It's what I'm hearing. Yes, you say. correct. It's pretty good. Um, later, does he establish like a, a live, laugh, love sort of? Yes. And in his final equivalent? in his yeah. final chapter, he says, you miss 100 percent of the shots you don't take. It's true. That's where Gretzky <laughs> got it from. So you, then, then that is why. You aim for where the monarchy is going to be. <laughs> yes. Um, so the, one of the big critiques, I think, we're kind of jumping around a bit. I, th- I don't think there's another way to, to tackle this uh, without me just doing a dry run through of, of the yeah. book. Yeah, I mean, we we don't do nonfiction a lot, so yeah, you know, we're kind of kind of feeling our way as we go. One of the critiques I think that people have 
of the like the callousness of it and i think this will knit a couple threads together is when he starts talking about free states and you know cities that are self-governing like the former uh, florentine republic right he then goes on to talk about how I guess the best way to deal with them is to destroy them. The truth is that the only sure way to hold such places is to destroy them. If you well, that's pretty, that's pretty straightforward. If you conquer a city accustomed to self-government and opt not to destroy it, you can expect it to destroy you. Republics, uh, oh, what does he say? Um, their memory of old freedoms linger on and won't let them rest. In these cases, your only options are to reduce the place to rubble or go and live there yourself. Mm. Um, so, so what if the machines had gone to live amongst the humans rather than trying to terminate all of them? Why did they send one Schwarzenegger back when they could have sent all of their Schwarzeneggers back? Uh, I'm, I'm. It's probably explained in universe, but I haven't seen the movies in a while, so I'm gonna say it's either hubris or they only had like the energy to send back so many. Oh, that would make sense. That's true. Yeah. Did a did a Terminator ever have a kid? Or maybe they just didn't want to alter the timeline too much because the timeline as it existed worked out pretty good for them. Yes, that's true. <laughs> so they didn't want to send back a bunch of robots who would screw everything up. Wonder if those robots ever read the prince. I don't know. That's true. Hmm. Um, it's good. That's good music. <laughs> the other it's pretty good. So like that essential ruthlessness is a thing that carries throughout the book and the ruthlessness gets justified over and over again. So one of the things that made my gave me a little bit of a headache was when he started <laughs> talking about um, how you have to make like big, bold actions because like people are resistant to change. Um, he says, uh, the person bringing in changes will make enemies of everyone who was doing well under the old system, while the mm -hmm. people who stand to gain from the new arrangements will not offer wholehearted support, part, partly because they are afraid of their opponents who still have the laws on their side, and partly mm -hmm. because people are naturally skeptical. No one mm -hmm. really believes in change until they've had solid, solid experience of it. Huh. Huh. I just found myself thinking of our healthcare system. I was just, that was something I was thinking earlier is like, why does nobody do this like scorched earth ends justify the means stuff for like public healthcare? Why does it always have to be about like disenfranchising minorities and stuff? You know, like why can't it be a cool thing? So this is like, I mean, Machiavelli has, I don't think. The reason I don't think that this work holds up as a satire is there's too many things in it like this that feel like truisms that I I can't personally argue with. Like I think that his assertion here about uh, the nature of people being resistant to change. Later he says a thing about like people will lash out out of fear. The way it's phrased is such a way that like yeah I totally buy that people are afraid of things and that's what spurs them to rebellion or to action or whatever it might be. Um, he just, it doesn't seem like it's setting someone up to fail as explicitly as I think a satirical reading would, would want. See my, I don't know. I, I can't say whether the prince is supposed to be read as satire or not. I can say that I don't think political satire works because I have, <laughs> I don't, 
think I've seen a political satire that is not 10 to 20 years away from becoming indistinguishable from reality. Mm. Um, There is in a, I think like a second or third season episode of 30 Rock. So we're talking like 2009, 2010, uh, where Jack, the conservative boss, has uh, one of his black employees played by Tracy Jordan. Or is it Tracy Morgan's the real name? Tracy Jordan's the character. Yes, name. I think that's right. <laughs> um, he's recording a an ad for uh, Republicans that calls black people black Americans and says that Martin Luther King had a dream it was to build a 200 foot high wall to keep Mexico out. And also he hated the estate tax. Oh, my God. And all three of those things, including the Republican approach to the black electorate in America, the wall thing and the estate tax add on thing. Those are all like basically the official party platform now. And at the time they were supposed to be a joke. And so, and this also, you recently watched veep. Yes. A show that I enjoyed a lot until like the last two seasons where you couldn't do political satire anymore because all the real stuff was too wild. Yeah. It's just this, this work doesn't, function that way so i don't think i can even compare it like we you and i are talking a little bit before recording and so like i think the closest i have to a retort on the prince's part is just that it's not even attempting that and it doesn't it's i'm positing a big bold theory which is that no political satire exists (laughs) okay well i don't i don't know that i agree with that there is not there's not political satire there is only political commentary that exists (laughs) ahead of time okay because well because <laughs> this and this is to be clear i am kind of sort of joking but also but sort of I? not but yeah because orwellian yeah. stuff unfortunately has be that i don't even know if he would qualify that as satire as much as critique and commentary and absurdist truth um you have things like i don't, modest- think, I don't think orwell was pessimistic enough like he didn't yeah, account fair. for a reality where we all like gleefully invited the surveillance into our lives for like convenience's sake. I, he was he was imagining is the a only... system imposed from the top down and instead of one created from the bottom up. Is the only successful political well not even successful. Is the only political satire a modest proposal when Jonathan Swift was like, "Well, we'll just eat the babies" and everyone was like, "I guess we won't do that." It's true. Well, okay. Is that the so only one? <laughs> in the Andrew Cunningham theory of political satire, I posit that we just haven't gotten all the way there yet. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so Jonathan Swift did good political satire insofar as he created one that was the farthest away from becoming reality that it could be. Okay. Sure. But, but in today's media environment, you could write a modest proposal and the headline would be Republicans propose eating babies yes. democrats disagree okay <laughs> so good it would be <laughs> um so then so that gets to something i think the the prince spends a lot of time on cesar borgia cesare i don't know the dog whisperer uh mr pick a, borgia pick away and pronounce it that way mr borgia um okay, sure. who you talked about earlier he was the son of pope alex the sixth um, he got in charge, but he was pretty reliant on mercenaries and the French king. And he did a lot of cruel things. He did a lot of bad things. He was mean to a lot of people. He apparently like installed 
there were a bunch of unpopular policies, and then he blamed them on another dude, and then had that dude killed. Like he, well, okay. <laughs> and what Machiavelli argues is that he didn't fully succeed, but he came pretty close, and he uh, was able to accomplish a lot by being ruthless. Uh, and it almost feels like whatever that drill tweet is responding to in the you got you in fact you don't gotta hand it to them. That's about uh, ISIS. Yes, well, it, it's the unwritten tweet that drill is saying. Uh, yes, sure. <laughs> uh, to correct a previous tweet, you in fact don't gotta hand it to yeah, them. I gotta hand it to them. Yes. Um, that is like the middle of this book, which is all the people that you have to hand it to. Um, where. <laughs> Borgia is like his his biggest crime is not all of the crimes he did, but that he miscalculated that a pope he recommended for the papacy would remember how much he hated Borgia and like Mm -hmm. lead to his destruction. Um, He then talks a whole bunch about people who became princes through crime. That's the word (laughs) Parks uses. Okay. Which mul- which lays out multiple red wedding scenarios where people like gather <laughs> all of their opposition like hey, we have to have a senate meeting tomorrow. Can you all show up? And they all show up and then everyone gets killed and he's like, "Well, I'm in charge now. Good job." Mm-hmm. Um yeah. this is not Borgia, these are other people. So yeah, he's talking about one dude, Agathocles. Um he lived a life of depravity from start to finish. All the same, mixed with that depravity, were such excellent mental and physical qualities that he rose through the ranks and eventually became commander-in-chief. Um, his brutality, cruelty, and inhumanity together, together with the endless crimes he committed means he has no place among the men we most admire. Um, in conclusion, we can't attribute his achievements to luck or to positive qualities since he needed neither. <laughs> so there is a just a lot of like... These were bad dudes, but they accomplished things. And if we're going to study how to accomplish things, we must acknowledge that these guys did them. Mm-hmm. Um, which then plays into a whole section towards the end of the book where he is talking about um, how like, you don't need to be a good person. You just need to seem like a good person. And it would honestly be better if you weren't a good person because to be in power, you're going to have to be a bad person sometimes. Mm-hmm. So you don't want... And and ultimately, he takes a very Hobbesian view in the classical like Renaissance philosophy sense of like men are bad. They're just bad people. And many of them will break their word. And there's no point in being a good person uh, if that's going to prevent you from ruling people who are not good. Uh, okay. Does that make sense? It. I mean, I'm, the logic is circular, but the you know the the viewpoint makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, it is a little circular, and it, it's like people are bad. You could be a good person, and ultimately you will like fail because you will strive to like live out virtues that will not actually keep you in power he talks about like generosity an empirically good thing but if you give away too much of your own money your state will be bankrupt and people will expect too much from you i guess i assume that he's he's not saying that good people don't exist he's saying that you can't be a good person and be an effective ruler he's saying it is it is the 
if he were Nate Silver, he'd have calculated the odds and he'd say that like 60% of <laughs> rulers succeed when they do bad things sometimes. So mm-hmm. it is better to be a person who's willing to do a bad thing than be a completely scrupulous person. Scrupulous? Scrupulous person. Scrupulous, yeah. Who will never do a bad thing because you will lose if you are unwilling to like, you know, break some heads or okay. lie sometimes. Um, yeah, those are the two bad things. Those are the two bad things. Breaking um, heads and telling fibs. And that's how he gets to the the money quote of the book, which folks may have heard if they have heard about this book. Um, is it better to be loved rather than feared or vice versa? The answer is that one would prefer to be both, but since they don't go together easily, if you have to choose, it's much safer to be feared than loved. Um he then goes on to say, we can say this to most people, that they are ungrateful and unreliable. They lie, they fake, they're greedy for cash, and they melt away in the face of danger. <laughs> so sure. long as you're generous, not in immediate danger, they're all on your side. But when you need them, they turn their backs on you. Um, and then he goes on to say, actually, being feared is perfectly compatible with not being hated. And a ruler won't be hated if he keeps his hands off his subject's property and their women. Okay. A man will sooner forget the death of his father than the loss of his inheritance. Uh, He does get a little in the weeds. I was surprised upon this read. I did not, I was not aware of the extent to which he does kind of double down on that last idea that like, if you let people do their thing, have their land, have their money, they will do whatever you ask as long as you don't upset that. Um, and it gets to like a that's a, that has like a modern resonance for me where it's like the the way in which you call everyone the middle class so that you can um, like as long as you're not raising taxes on the quote unquote middle class like you won't upset the electorate here in America and then you'll be uh-huh. fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then that so that's that to me is like the central quote of the book that i think people think about when they think about machiavelli of the like it's better to be ruthless he also says it's better to do all the bad stuff you need to do right at the top like don't be cruel like you know 12 months in a row just be cruel a lot for the first month and then You'll have give people as much time as you possibly can to forget correct. the cruel stuff that you did. Yes, he says that they will forget it over time, um, and in that time that passes, you will have like earned their loyalty in other ways. Um, so if any of this sounds like crappy or sounds, well, I don't want my leaders to be that way, I think Machiavelli may or may not agree with you. He just, he's not trying to moralize about them and i think that is frustrating to a reader who wants those morals to exist in the world and it was scandalous to readers in the 16th century who wanted those morals to exist in the world yeah like he's he just kind of accepts as a given that like this this is the way the things are yep and given that this is reality here's what i think and i don't know you can disagree on with him about what reality is but there is an awful lot of this that still sort of holds true. So that's, I don't know, that's bad. <laughs> that doesn't feel great. <laughs> and it's my professional. There's And there's elements commentary. of the work that I was surprised are like surprisingly 
sophisticated psychological like perceptions of psychology he says to the question of being feared or loved my conclusion is that since people decide for themselves whether to love a ruler or not it's the ruler who decides whether they're going to fear him a sensible man will base his power on what he controls not on what others have freedom to choose but he must take care as i said that people don't come to hate him so he's like developed this worldview that is like hey people are going to think what they're going to think so you can't control that part what you can control mm-hmm. are the things that you do sure so why don't you just do that mm-hmm. um I th- yeah i don't know i was fascinated by this book i want to read one goofy uh, not so goofy but like odd statement and then it'll probably take us out i think okay sure um at the end of the book the last thing in the book is it's like it's so it's bookended by letters um one is like, hey, Lorenzo, here's a gift I got you. Um, you'll love it. And at the end, it's like, hey, could you unite Italy and like end all this stupid fighting? You got to be a good prince to do this. Um, and that's where people are like, oh, this is, this is why it's a how-to book. But he closes his last little section um, with a discussion of fortune which is the closest he gets to discussing like God and fate and things like that. Um, He does talk about the papacy and how it's a, it's a harder thing to wrestle with because it has institutional inertia. Um, But he then just concludes with a a whole dissertation on like fortune and like planning ahead because you can't control everything. So the best time to plan for a flood is when it's not flooding kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, But then he says, um, my opinion on the matter is this. It's better to be impulsive than cautious. Fortune is female, and if you want to stay on top of her, you have to slap and thrust. You'll see she's more likely to yield that way than to men who go about her coldly. And being a woman, she likes her men young because they're not so cagey. They're wilder and more daring when they master her. Oh, what no. the F, dude? Oh, no. What are you talking about? <laughs> it's like what? Parks in it, to his credit, <laughs> Parks spends a decent portion of the translator's note like reading multiple versions of this passage mm-hmm. and like what it means and what he's going for and the fact that Machiavelli is writing for a male audience of course, men of power who are going to like not view women well and things like that and he's trying to be like he was a womanizer, Machiavelli was. Um, of course he was. So it's not surprising that he would turn to this type of metaphor. It just really no. stands out as like, what are you trying to do? Yeah, to- I, I know what he's trying to do. It's just like, I don't like it very much. I don't so. like it very much either. That's, that's um, all. I don't think we need to go any deeper into it than that. Uh, as we wrap, Andrew, are there any parts of your life that you think the principles of the prince might apply to i mean any cat owner i think will recognize oh gosh to rule with the iron fist (laughs) sure uh i spent a lot of them there are no there are no good cats (laughs) there are only cats who know the way things are i spent a lot of the middle part of the book thinking back to my early 20s when i played a lot of poker badly and the 
the books I read about playing poker that were all like, let's take a classical text like The Art of War and apply its principles to how you're going to lose money. And <laughs> the, the way that this book discusses just raw power maps to things like that. And I think it maps to, I think it's why like CEOs latch on to this type of book where it's like I can empirically measure how much influence and power i have in stocks and money and company um, size yeah since ceos are the modern day rulers of city yes. states yeah economically speaking then yeah i guess it's applicable and it's super great that these people all love the prince and ayn rand as their <laughs> their two favorite books. Like guiding documents like, i think it's okay. a it's a it's, it's a interesting thing to call your favorite if what you like about it is its advice but if you think it's your favorite because it's a realistic portrayal of what people will do and have done to stay in power then go for it or just like an interesting look into the psyche of a ruler yeah totally almost yeah, yeah. um so that's the prince there's a lot this is you know a surprisingly dense and talked about 100 pages of uh of work but I would recommend this translation by Tim Parks for anybody who has not read it recently. Like, it's really brisk. Um, he takes some of Machiavelli's own words to heart in terms of keeping it as concise as possible. Very easy to understand. Um, and now I'm going to use its principles to take over the podcasting world. That's my goal. Um, I'm gonna, you should do it. I'm going to conquer <laughs> weaker podcasts and uh ally with podcasts that are as strong as us but not stronger uh because mm -hmm. that's the thing that machiavelli says too right yeah you don't want to be the junior partner in that because you're just getting it played it's true it's true i need them to owe me later um mm -hmm. you can get us to owe you by sending us an email we will owe you an email at overtubot <laughs> at gmail.com <laughs> <laughs> um, and we will definitely owe you if you spread the word on social media at Overdue Pod at Facebook and Twitter. Uh, thanks to Aaron, Megan, Karen, Ingrid, Nicole, Katie, Miriam, Nigel, Holly, Grace, Kevin, Haley, and everyone else starting off the new year by spreading the word about our show. Andrew, if folks want to know more, where should they go? They can go to OverduePodcast.com, which is our internet website. That's where we have links to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and our RSS feed. We're also available on Spotify, Stitcher, and elsewhere. Um, one of your New Year's resolutions might be to give us money, patreon.com slash overdue pod. Uh, you can recommend books to us. You can get early episodes of whatever bonus episodes and special projects we're working on at the at the time. Right now, that's Hellboys, but we have uh, some more stuff in the hopper for this year that we're excited to, to tell you about. And I think that's pretty much as many words as my tattered vocal cords are going to let me get out. Great. I will say that you are for next week reading Margaret Atwood's The Testaments, the mm -hmm. sequel to The Handmaid's Tale. Yeah, we did The uh, Handmaid's Tale for an episode Long like five years ago. years ago. And I can't vouch for its contents anymore, honestly. Like, I'm... I'm pretty far along in testaments now and if i can reread handmaids before we record i would like to it's not something i could normally make time for but uh yeah i think it's probably worth doing anyway that'll that'll be next week uh happy new year everybody thanks for joining us and until we talk to you next try to be happy
That was a HeadGum Podcast. <laughs>